Welcome to the AOSSM recap episode of the Shelbourne East Center podcast. My name is Rodney Benner. I'm here with Scott Bauman. Scott, um, we uh, both attended this meeting. We had some posters at the meeting that we're going to discuss here in a little bit. What were some common themes that you saw at the meeting that uh, you thought were of particular interest? Yeah, first of all, I really enjoyed the conference. That's a, a meeting that I have never really been to. I feel like I've been to most of the other orthopedic conferences out there, whether they be for orthopedic surgeons or physical therapists, but that's one that I've I've not attended in the past. So this was the first time I've been, and I was really impressed. The programming I thought was great. Uh, a little smaller, which actually in a, uh, I think ended up being a good thing. Uh, you're able to see and talk to people I've seen in the past. So it was a, a good meeting overall. As far as the themes, you know, one of the main themes I had noted was lateral procedures with ACL reconstructions. And that's something that I know we do not do, but it seems to be a pretty hot topic, whether it be uh, lateral extraarticulars or anterior lateral ligament reconstructions. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely a topic that's uh, hot for conversation at the uh, at the meetings. I think your comment was is right on about that meeting being a little bit different thing. It's a total, totally different experience than going to the academy meeting, which a, a large, large meeting with all different subspecialties. You're reconnecting with people from residency and fellowship at that meeting. You're seeing people from all over the world. The subspecialty meetings are a lot more focused, a lot more question and answer sessions, a lot more discussion about uh, different topics that are hot topics around the country and around the world. And, um, and and so for me, that's a totally different experience going to the subspecialty meetings, specifically about lateral extraarticular procedures. I know it's a thing that a lot of people are talking about, and it's something that I don't have or I have limited, if any, experience with. Uh, this is just something that's been really uh, coming up in the last several years. Uh, I've been out in practice for 11 years, so this was just after my training where uh, these things started to come into into favor. So um, you know, for me, it's a it's a it's a technology that seems to be evolving like a lot of things we do in orthopedics. We all get excited about something that's different, new, that might make a difference, and everybody rushes to get started on it and start doing it. And I'm, I'm kind of more of the opinion that we should ju- just sit back, let, let, I'm gonna let somebody else figure that out, and uh, try to see if there's a place for it in my practice in the future. But definitely something that a lot of people were talking about. And, and another one that uh, got a lot of, of um, a lot of attention at this meeting was ACL repair. This is something that used to be done a long time ago before reconstructive techniques were developed that were really solid ones and now it's come back into favor with some of the biologic substitutes Martha Murray's been really uh, at, at the forefront of developing this with a lot of other surgeons around the country, and a lot of people are trying to figure out um, what uh, what role this has. Scott, talk a little bit about uh, what attention the the, uh, the Barrett procedure and ACL repair got at the meeting. Quite a bit, and similar to the lateral procedures, you know, there's definitely some good groups out there doing some some really sound research on outcomes after lateral procedures and outcomes after repair versus reconstruction. And one of the takeaways I took away from this meeting was, you know, the results are what they are, but I I feel like the research and the real clinical question is the indications for these things. And, you know, if you do a procedure and you do a repair versus reconstruction, you may show that they're equivalent from a research standpoint. But I think there's two steps before that, which I know a lot of the groups are looking into is what are the indications for a repair, for example, and who should we be doing these on? Are we doing these on younger athletes? Are we doing these on middle-aged recreational athletes? Are we doing these on sedentary uh, individuals that just need to function with ADLs? So um, that was a a takeaway for me. You know, I feel like in a good way that the groups are really looking more at indications as opposed to just looking at the outcomes compared to either a technique that for the laterals that doesn't have it or for the repairs, the reconstructions. 
Yeah, the devil's always in the details when it comes to a research perspective and really dialing into what the methods are for each of these studies. Uh, it's a lot. It's a lot harder to do in the setting of a subspecialty meeting uh, where there are five-minute presentations. It's really pretty fast and furious. There's not a lot of time for question and answers and for the uh, for the presenters to really hone in on the more specifics of the population they looked at, what their indications were, who they included and excluded. Just takes a little more time than you have in a five-minute presentation. But uh, I think that's an Another uh, evolving, uh, another evolving technology in sports medicine. That uh, another thing that I'm, I'm, I'm pretty slow to, uh, that I'm, that I'm not adopting yet, and I'm uh, waiting back to see what the, what the long, ter longer term data shows and how that all shakes out. One of the other themes at the meeting I noticed was ramp lesions associated with uh, ACL surgery, and surgeons are just now coming to the forefront of treatment for, even though they've seen them for years and years and years. And the topic was what to do with these ramp lesions. Are they repairable? Are they uh, tears that can be resected? Can they be left alone? So, and obviously you'll have more experience than I will. So what was your take on the ramp lesions talk at the meeting? Well, we have an interesting perspective on this by working with Dr. Shelbourne, who's had uh, 40 years of clinical research and following these different types of meniscus tears to try to figure out what's repairable, what's not, what you should excise, what you should leave alone, et cetera. As most of the people who are listening know, if they're familiar with, with our work, we leave a lot of meniscus tears at the time of ACL surgery alone and have published pretty extensively on this. And specifically for this type of tear, uh, I actually was a co-author on a study with Dr. Shelbourne and another one of our medical students uh, that talked about peripheral, vertical, non-degenerative, non-displaceable tears of the posterior horn of the medial meniscus that were found at the time of ACL surgery. People don't necessarily refer to them in those terms, but for me, that's the same kind of tear that everybody's talking about, that vertical tear that's maybe at the meniscal capsular junction or maybe just barely into the meniscus. There was a lot of discussion about how to see this tear, approaching it from posterior, putting the, putting the scope in the back of the knee in order to be able to see it or putting the scope through the notch to try to see it. Um, for, from our perspective, we use a straight scope from the medial portal and I think that's an easier way to see this type of tear as opposed to using a 30-degree scope from the lateral portal where the hardest place to see is in the back of the medial compartment, which is where this tear lies. Um, so I would refer anyone to our uh, our previous work about that uh, from Dr. Shelbourne, myself, and Ryan Nixon, who's now out practicing as well, uh, about our take on this, uh, that most of these tears, a lot of them we feel like can be left alone and that we have data to, to, to uh, back that up. And that's something we'll definitely cover in later episodes because meniscus tears, what to do with them, and uh, you know the rationale behind what uh, what's led us to our treatment plans with these tears uh, is definitely something we'll want to talk about in the future. Well, for this meeting, our office was lucky enough to have three posters uh, accepted for presentation uh, led by uh, Dr. Shelbourne, Dr. Benner, and, and a medical student, Nick Brown from Marion University. So today is going to be reviewing those three posters and telling you about these studies that we performed. Scott, the first one was one that you worked on with myself and with Dr. Shelbourne, and this is a, a, a topic that's really near and dear to any time you see Shelbourne Knee Center or Dr. Shelbourne's name. In a, in a talk or in a research project talking about the long-term outcomes of ACL surgery. Um, this one was titled, Objectively Measuring Knee Extension is Critical When Analyzing Long-Term Outcomes After an Anterior Cruciate Ligament Reconstruction. And the authors are myself, or Dr. Shelburne's the first author, myself and, uh, and Scott as well. So Scott, tell us a little bit about what brought this study about. How did we get to, uh, to this topic uh, and, and have interest in looking at it? 
Well, a couple things was the start for this. That the first, as you mentioned, for years and years and years, Dr. Shelbourne has really pushed maximizing and normalizing the extension postoperatively. The initial reason was to get those short and intermediate term outcomes maximized. So things like returning to normal gait, returning to sport at, a, at an adequate time, returning to, to normal strength, getting good short-term outcomes on the IKDC, for example, after a year or so after surgery. That was the, the main goal. And now that Dr. Shelbourne has been in practice for 40-some years and collecting long-term data, the thought was, well, let's look at knee extension long-term to see if it still has the the positive benefits that short-term extension gain does. So that was that was reason number one. The second reason is is really following a lot of the other studies that we've read, uh, really the long-term studies and what leads to positive outcomes after ACL reconstruction and what doesn't. In particular, groups like the Moon Group, who has been putting out some great research for years, their data will tell us that after ACL reconstructions long-term, structural abnormalities play a, a large role in their outcome. Things like having a meniscus tear at the time of surgery, having a chondral defect at the time of surgery, those two things alone have been found to lead to more negative outcomes compared to those that do not have those structural abnormalities. So what we wanted to do was, and we're in the unique position to do so, of having objective data tied to that, meaning we can look at not only patients that have a normal knee from a structural standpoint, patients that have meniscus tears, patients that have chondral injuries, and then take those groupings of patients and see how normal knee extension and abnormal extension can make positive or negative impacts in those long-term outcomes. Yeah, and I think this topic's a really important one to put all these things into context. I think if you ask anybody who does ACL surgery, does ligament reconstruction surgery, is meniscus is meniscus pathology a negative predictor in the long term? Of course, everyone knows that, that the case is that that that's the case. Are chondral injuries a harbinger for bad things coming down the road as far as development of arthritis and potentially poor outcomes. Everybody knows that. And because of the contributions from Dr. Shelbourne over a number over the last couple of decades, I think everybody knows that there's an impact of stiffness on the long-term outcome from ACL surgery. But to put it all in proper context is really difficult because even though we know each of those individual factors are at play, what we really wanted to do with this study was find out how much of a contribution is there. If you have a meniscus tear, it, we know it's bad, but how bad? If you lose extension, we know it's bad, but how bad is it? And the same with chondral injuries. So uh, tell us about the methods that we utilized in this study to try to answer those questions. Sure. So we took a, a large cohort of patients having a patellar tendon graft, ACL reconstruction, and enrolled them into the study. We excluded patients that had revision ACLs, same-day bilateral involvement, or any degree of osteoarthritis at the time of surgery. So what we did was take that large cohort of patients that ended up being 3,382 patients and split them into four groups. Group number one was having a normal knee, so no structural ab abnormalities. Second group was isolated meniscus tear, medial or lateral. Third group was chondral defects in the medial or lateral compartment. And then the fourth group was a combination of meniscus tears and chondral injuries. Furthermore, we took this same, took each of those four groups and we subdivided them based on having normal or abnormal knee extension. And to define abnormal and normal extension, we use the IKDC objective form, which states that anything greater than two degrees off from the other side is going to be abnormal. For example, if you have five degrees of hyperextension on the non-involved side and two degrees of hyperextension on the involved side, that patient would technically be abnormal since the difference was greater than two. I think that's a really important point to talk about is just how tightly 
controlled those groups are with what we consider normal and what we don't consider normal. We use the IKDC side-to-side criteria of normal being only either perfectly symmetric or within two degrees of the opposite normal knee. Even three degrees of extension loss, even if you still have, you know, in some of these patients that have eight degrees of hyperextension, five degrees of hyperextension is a three-degree loss and is considered nearly normal. So very tightly controlled uh, and very small abnormalities with extension were considered not to be normal. So that's another thing to take into account as well as we're looking at really all of these uh, fact all of these situations whether you have a meniscal or chondral injury and uh, whether or not you have normal range of motion to really put all that into context so after we split the groups into four and then we subdivided them based on their knee extension we want to look at two outcomes the main outcomes that we were looking at were the long-term ikdc's and the rate of osteoarthritis on radiographs and from a timing perspective Every patient that we looked at was a minimum 10 years follow-up. So that was objective follow-up where they come in the office, have their range of motion taken, they have x-rays, they do the surveys all at the same time, and that was a minimum 10 years. It came out to be an average of 17 years postoperatively. And what kind of results did we find? So uh, as the results go, for the normal knee going through the groups as normal knee, meniscus tear, chondral injury, and meniscus tear and chondral injury, as you had mentioned earlier, I think everybody would agree that the more pathology you have, the worse your results are going to be long-term. And in a vacuum, that held true. So if you're looking at something like rate of osteoarthritis, and the way we defined osteoarthritis was having moderate or severe narrowing in the joint, because we consider that to be, from a long-term perspective, more of a problem than than obviously none or, or mild arthritis. And when you go in those groups, the more pathology did lead to more osteoarthritis. The normal knee with no structural abnormalities, had an OA rate of 5%, meniscus tear 12%, chondral injuries 16%, and a combination of meniscus tears and chondral injuries at 25%. However, the interesting thing was, after you subdivided those groups based on their knee extension, those with normal motion consistently in all four groups had lower rates of osteoarthritis. For example, in the normal knee without any structural abnormalities, 5% had arthritis as a whole, when you subdivided them into normal and abnormal, the patients that had normal motion, only 3% of patients had abnormal x-rays. And with abnormal motion, 27% had osteoarthritis at a minimum 10 years post-op. Pretty incredible difference in, that they have in those osteoarthritis rates uh, from a combined percentage, a combined group of 5% to breaking things down by normal motion, only 3%, abnormal motion, 27%. Obviously, there were a lot more people that were in the normal group, which is why the average is, uh, the uh, uh, rate is 5%. But uh, it really puts it in context how important getting full range of motion back is, even in a normal knee. Sure. And that really holds true in every group. And you go to the extreme with the more severe pathology with the combination of meniscus tear and chondral injury, and it really holds true as well. Those with normal motion in that group have an OA rate of 18% compared to 46% with abnormal range of motion. And that's pretty striking. You know, you look at the normal motion for patients that have meniscus tears and chondral injuries have an OA rate of 18, and you compare that to what we talked about with normal knees. You have a normal knee and you have abnormal range of motion, your OA rate is 27%. Uh, so looking at that in that context of normal motion versus abnormal motion based on your structural abnormalities is really eye-opening. Yeah, and the IKDC subjective scores were markedly different as well. Talk about the differences in those subjective scoring systems that long-term follow-up based on whether patients had normal motion or not. For the IKDCs, the trends really followed the same 
path that the osteoarthritis data did, where the severity of the pathology typically is going to lead to worse scores. And then as you break it down into normal knee motion and abnormal knee motion, it holds true with those having normal motion, having better scores. For example, those with uh, without any structural abnormalities, patients that had normal motion scored 87 on average on the IKDC at that time point compared to 72 for those with abnormal motion. And then again, on the other side of the spectrum with the meniscus tear and chondral injury group, those with normal range of motion at that time had average scores of 85 compared to 76 for, for those with abnormal motion. And the interesting part, I think if you ask most orthopedic surgeons, would you rather your patient have a meniscus tear that you have to take a part of it out or a chondral injury at the time of their ACL surgery, or would you rather have them have a small degree of knee extension loss? I think most everybody would say, I'd rather have a little bit of extension loss as opposed to the structural problems with meniscus and chondral injuries. And I think this paper really shows the opposite, that the the extension loss was more impactful. If we look at normal knees that had no meniscus and chondral injuries but had extension loss, 27% rate of OA and a 72 average IKDC score versus if we look at people who had both a meniscus tear and a chondral injury but had normal motion, only an 18%, a lower rate of OA and a IKDC score of 85 as opposed to 72. A pretty striking difference and it really uh, really sends home the point that, uh, that knee extension is so vitally important. Yeah, and one step beyond that, you're talking about making the decision of how to address a meniscus tear at the time of ACL surgery. Let's say you do address it and you address it with a repair, for example. A lot of surgeons will typically have some period of non-weight bearing or partial weight bearing or, or some type of limited flexion that is, for lack of better terms, it's really causing a flexion contracture. And if you know that a flexion contracture early on has detrimental effects and then now this data shows that the it could have potentially detrimental effects long term. How do you how are you going to treat that uh, that tear scene at the time of surgery? I think is a is a good question. Some fascinating data that really informs our decision making around those uh, issues, and we hope that it will impact yours as well. So the second poster we had at AOSSM this year was titled "Graft Harvest for ACL Reconstruction from the Contralateral Knee Does Not Increase Patellofemoral." arthritis versus normal knee. This was uh, authored by Dr. Benner, myself, Bill Clausen, a physical therapist at our office, as well as Dr. Shelbourne. Uh, Dr. Benner, tell us a little bit about what the purpose of this study was and how it came to be. Well, as somebody who does patella tendon grafts routinely and our entire office does, uh, they're, we're always interested in what seems to be everybody's trying to come up with reasons not to do patella tendon grafts, even though I think most of those people would then turn around and tell you that the gold standard graft, if they're doing a a, a, a high-level athlete, probably would be the patella tendon. Um, so we're trying to look at all those factors that people are coming up with as negative effects of what they uh, perceive as uh, bad things about patella tendon grafts and then put them to the test from our data because we believe that patella tendon is the best graft. Uh, so there was some previous research that's been coming out that's shown a little bit higher incidences of patellofemoral degenerative changes in knees that have had a patella tendon graft taken from it. However, uh, taking the graft from the same knee, of course, lumps in the changes that are associated with the graft harvest along with the changes that are associated with an ACL reconstruction. So I think we're in a particular uh, position to be able to answer this question in a way that other people can't because we are able to have in our database knees that have had an ACL reconstruction with a graft, patellar tendon graft from the same knee. 
we're able to look at normal knees that have not had an ACL reconstruction or a patella tendon graft. And then we're able to look in the contralateral situation at a knee that's had an ACL reconstruction, but not a graft. And on the other side, a graft harvest, but not an ACL reconstruction, because that allows us to uh, see what part of the degenerative changes are specifically from the patella tendon graft and not necessarily a result of the ACL graft. So I think this is something that we are uniquely positioned to answer. And knowing that background, tell us how you set this study up and what was the methodology? So we looked at our database of long-term follow-up from our ACL reconstruction patients that were done by Dr. Shelbourne years and years ago and queried them to find surgeries that were done at a minimum of 15 years ago and a maximum of 25 years ago. So we're looking at really long-term follow-up. And then we separated them into four groups. We split the ipsilateral group into the ACL knee and the normal knee. So in the ipsilateral ACL knee, we have both the ACL reconstruction and the graft harvest done on the same knee. In the ipsilateral graft group in the opposite knee or normal knee, the knee has had neither one, has not had an ACL reconstruction, has not had a patella tendon graft taken from it. And that's kind of our baseline of what kind of patellofemoral arthritis this population uh, had in a normal knee that had, had nothing done to it. And then we took the contralateral group and split them into the ACL reconstructed knee or the graft donor knee to try to separate the effects of each of those procedures and their impacts on whether or not patients develop patellofemoral arthritis. And then we looked at the OA rates compared between those groups. Now, with all that being said, tell us a little bit about the results. So when we looked at the ipsilateral ACL knee, so this is the knee that had uh, that had a patellotinograph taken from it and put into the same knee for an ipsilateral ACL reconstruction. The involved knee had about a 20% patellofemoral arthritis rate, and the uninvolved knee, the normal knee, had a rate of 9.5%. So it was statistically significant difference with an odds ratio of 2.4 times. And of course, we would expect that, that a knee that's normal versus a knee that's had an ACL reconstruction and an ACL graft taken from it are should definitely have different incidence rates of arthritis. When we looked at the contralateral group, we found them to be more even. So the ACL knee that had an ACL reconstruction but not a graft had a patellofemoral arthritis rate of 10.2%. And the opposite knee, the patellotendon graft knee, had a patellofemoral arthritis rate of 13.3%. So fairly equal, and they were not statistically significant. So I think the, in, the most interesting ways to then take those and compare them to try to answer this question about whether or not the patellotinograph actually causes arthritis. One is to compare the contralateral donor knee, so the knee that just had the patellofemoral graft taken from it, versus the ipsilateral group's normal knee, where there has not been a graft or an ACL reconstruction at all. And those, uh, if you compare the incidence rates, the contralateral graft knee had an incidence of 13.3%. The normal knee in the ipsilateral patients that had nothing done to it was 9.5%. So 13 versus 13.3 versus 9.5, a very minimal, if any, increase that is just because of the patella tendon graft. If we look at the ACL knee in the ipsilateral group, which also had the graft taken from it and the contralateral group, which did not, there was a statistically significant trend uh, leading towards higher arthritis rates in the ipsilateral group versus the contralateral group. And I think the, the, the real take-home message from this is that in our opinion, we believe is backed up by this data, the patella tendon graft doesn't necessarily cause arthritis because the knee that just had the graft taken from it without the ACL reconstruction did not have an increased risk of arthritis, but the ACL knee that had a graft taken from it did. 
So we believe the combination of the ACL graft and the ACL reconstruction being on the same knee can lead to an increased risk of extension loss. And if you get extension loss, as we talked about earlier, and we know from long-term studies, that ultimately can lead to an increased incidence of arthritis. Um, so we would argue if you take the graft from the opposite knee, that incidence rate for the ACL knee goes down from 20% to 10%. And that if you rehab the ACL knee and don't lose knee extension, then you probably won't see that increased arthritis risk that is noted by other authors. Excellent. Yeah. And I found this study fascinating. I, I think we're at our clinic are in a pretty unique spot to be able to compare these four different groups with having a high volume of ACLs, both with ipsilateral graphs and contralateral graphs to be able to, to like, as you explained, put these patients in one of those four groups and then compare them statistically based on OA grades. So I, I thought this was a great study. So great work on this. The last study we're going to talk about deals specifically with patella tendinosis. So uh, this study was entitled Relationship Between Patella Tendon Length and Surgical Treatment for Patella Tendinosis. The first author on this study is Nick Brown, and Nick is a now fourth-year medical student at Marion University uh, College of Osteopathic Medicine. He is an aspiring future orthopedic surgeon that I think will have no problems being a good uh, being a good surgeon in his future. And he worked with us some at our, at our office on research after rotating with us and really came up with a study that I think is of interest when it relates to patella tendinitis. So, Scott, you know this as being a former therapist at our office. Patella tendinosis, patella tendinitis can really be a difficult problem to treat, and there aren't a lot of great surgical treatments that really reliably get rid of it. So uh, talk to us a little bit about this study and what the background was on how we made the connection between patella tendon length and the surgical treatment of patella tendinosis. Well, the background, to be honest with you, was really anecdotal more than anything. You know, typically when you talk about the topic of patella alta, most people, and I would agree them, would go to the topic of patella dislocations. However, anecdotally, when we were seeing these patients that had patellar tendinitis and it would progress to patellar tendinosis that was really untreatable from a non-op standpoint, and, and we would recommend surgery for that. Anecdotally, we would see that these patients had pretty long tendons, and the thought was, is the patellar tendinosis coming because the tendon is longer for, for some biomechanical reasoning, or is it just by happenstance or what? So is there a, an association with patella alta leading to patellar tendinosis? So that was the start of this study, and the purpose was to determine the association between patellar tendon length and the surgical treatment for recalcitrant patellar tendinosis, which I think is another important designation. It's not just patella tendinitis. Uh, where you're having stage one or stage two, you know, pain after activities, pain during activities. This is progression to the point where it is recalcitrant to, to therapy. It's not going to really help uh, at this point anymore. And you get an MRI scan, you see some necrotic tissue on the tendon area at the distal pole of the patella that would need to be surgically excised. So that's the population we use for this study. And when we look at the methods of this study, talk to us about how we came up with this population and uh, what kind of comparisons we made uh, to come up with this relationship. So we took 45 patients that were on the schedule for recalcitrant patellar tendinosis, which would eventually be having a partial patellar tendinectomy to remove that necrotic tissue. And we wanted to compare them to a, a healthy control. And in our office, we see a high volume of ACL reconstructions and their opposite side when they're having ACL tear is designated as our healthy control for this for this study. We excluded any patients that had previous patellar tendinosis or patellar tendinitis on that opposite knee, so we could designate that truly as a normal knee. And we control match those to the recalcitrant patellar tendinitis patients based on sex, height, 
and weight, and that left 45 patients in each group for analysis. From an outcome measure standpoint, the main outcome we wanted to look at was patellar tendon length. We measured that on a lateral view x-ray with the knee flexed at 60 degrees, measuring from the tip of the distal pole of the patella down to the insertion site on the tibial tubercle. And the secondary analysis we want to look at was, is there any type of strength difference? So what we looked at was preoperative quadriceps strength on the isokinetic machine, and we looked at the non-involved side on both ones on that. So the non-involved side for the ACL group would have been our healthy control, and the non-involved side for the patellar tendonitis group would have been one that was not having symptoms that would warrant surgery. So when that comparison was done, what kind of results did you find and what did we learn from uh, from that endeavor? So the main outcome was looking at patellar tendon length. Patients that were having recalcitrant patellar tendonitis had statistically significantly longer patellar tendons compared to the healthy control of patients having an ACL reconstruction. Those with patellar tendonitis had patellar tendon lengths of 57.6 millimeters compared to the ACL group at 46.1 millimeters, which was statistically significant. So that was the main effect that we were looking for. Our secondary analysis, or one of the secondary analysis, was looking at preoperative strength. And when we compared the groups together, we did not find any strength differences on the isokinetic strength test. Last, we did a, another secondary analysis looking at sports uh, frequency distribution between these two groups. And we combined the jumping sports of basketball and volleyball, and we wanted to see what distribution of patients in each group were playing those two sports. And what we found was a statistically significant difference from a frequency distribution of patients in those two sports for those with patellar tendonitis and those in the ACL group with 60% of those having recalcitrant patellar tendonitis playing jumping sports of basketball and volleyball compared to only 31% for the ACL tear group. So how do we put these data into context? What do you think this all means? And what are, what is it about having a longer patella tendon that potentially makes it a bigger setup for patella tendonitis, especially these recalcitrant cases that go on to surgical management? Well, I think that's a good question. And, and that's one thing that this study is, is definitely not answering. It really didn't even attempt to answer that. But I, I think knowing this association is there, it leads you down the road of, of asking that very question of what what's the take home with this and why is that the case? And I'm not sure I have a great answer to explain why based on this study. But when you talk about lever arms and the physics or the biomechanics of it, I, I think that may have a at least a, a some part in playing a role into why there's longer patellar tendons for those that go on to have more severe tendonitis. Yeah, I think there's really two main explanations, and one of them, you hit the nail on the head. One of them, is there something biomechanically that puts higher stress on the tendon attachment because the patella sits higher in the trochlear groove? Does that change the way that forces are placed across the tendon and lead to more problems? So that's definitely uh, one possibility, uh, as you said, that this study doesn't answer, but one that, uh, that we hypothesize. The other one is we know that these people who end up uh, with patellar tendonitis and have longer tendons in the, in the long tendon group, the patellar tendonitis group are more likely to participate in basketball and volleyball. So the question is, in my opinion, since those are some of the sports that are most likely to lead to recalcitrant patellar tendonitis because of the repetitive jumping, is there some sort of a performance advantage in patients with higher patella tendons when it comes to jumping sports. Now, I don't know whether that's possible or not, but we matched these to people that were the same height, weight, age. Uh, and because of that, you would think they would be involved in similar activities, but the people who went on to need patella tendonitis surgery more likely were in uh, basketball and volleyball and had longer tendons. So the question is, is there some sort of a performance advantage for those specific sports, repetitive jumping sports, if you have a longer tendon? And I don't know the answer to that. 
So that's the recap on the three posters, uh, poster presentations that we had for AOSSM. If you have any questions, comments, anything of that nature, please drop us a line on our social media pages or via email. Uh, but before we wrap up today, I did want to take just a couple minutes to congratulate Dr. Shelbourne. At AOSSM, he was awarded the Thomas Brady Award, and the reception was on Wednesday night, which I was lucky enough to go with him, and he gave a great speech, and, and it really is a, a true honor for Dr. Shelbourne to win that award. Yeah, and this specific award, the Thomas Brady Award, is really about community service and, and specifically in a sports medicine society, providing sports medicine coverage to people in your community. And uh, Thomas Brady was his mentor that he started with in practice back in 1982 that was that really taught him how to do sports medicine, taught him how to be a sports medicine doctor. And it's really interesting to hear some of his old stories of working with Dr. Brady, how he would just drive around on Friday night from school to school, checking in, see if anybody got hurt. He'd have a Saturday morning clinic where athletes would come in that Dr. Shelbourne used to help him on. And that that experience, I think, really led to a, a future that was dedicated to sports medicine, de dedicated to athletic uh, orthopedic injuries that has led to uh, Dr. Shelbourne really being a giant in the, in the in the world of orthopedics and sports medicine specifically. So uh, thank you to the AOSSM for, uh, for uh, recognizing uh, my partner, Dr. Shelbourne, in that way and a well-deserved honor. And as we mentioned, if you have any comments or questions on anything we talked about today, or if you have any ideas for future podcasts you want to hear us talk about, contact us in a, in a variety of ways. We're on Twitter and Instagram at the SKC Podcast. You can find us on our SKC Podcast Facebook page, or you can email us at the SKC Podcast at gmail.com. This has been our follow-up episode to the AOSSM Annual Meeting 2023 that took place about two weeks ago in Washington, D.C., and we thank you all for listening. Please tune in next week uh, for a topic that I think everybody wants to know about anytime you hear about Shelbourne Knee Center. I get asked more about taking the graft from the opposite knee for ACL surgery when uh, I go to meetings than probably any other topic. So we're starting a three-part series next week uh, that will include some interviews with one of our physical therapists and with Dr. Shelbourne himself to really lay out the case for this, why we do it, the results we get, how the therapy is different, and where this all came from. So please join us next week, and thank you for joining us this week on the Shelbourne Knee Center podcast. <music>